You're listening to a podcast from 702. 702. 702. Bongani Bingwa. Wrapping up your day. Jacob Zuma, the man who became the president of South Africa in 2009, was acquitted of rape in 2006. That is a legal truth. But what is the moral and ethical truth? Does the law go far enough in capturing the many truths that mark the journey of life? So begins the introduction of Ridi Chabi's much-celebrated book on Fezekile Nzugela Kuzwayo, the woman who became known as Kwezi to protect her identity during that infamous trial. The Sunday Times yesterday published the names of teachers who've been found guilty of misconduct by the Education Labor Relations Council, whose approach as a civil uh, approach is to place the burden, the burden of proof at a balance of probability rather than the tougher level of reasonable doubt, as would be the case in a criminal matter. And I want uh, to bring into the conversation now uh, Lisa Vetten uh, uh, from uh, he's a, well, Lisa Vetten, a gender rights activist and a doctoral candidate at Witz City Institute. Uh, Lisa, good afternoon to you and thank you for your time. Good afternoon, Bogani. Thanks very much. Do you agree with the approach of the Education Labor Relations Council? Well, in a sense, they don't really have an option. They're not a criminal tribunal. They don't have the authority to try criminal matters. So therefore, the beyond reasonable doubt, the burden of proof in a criminal matter would not apply. But as a labor tribunal, which falls under the branch of civil law, where your burden of proof is, beyond, is on a balance of probability, what they're doing is, a, is absolutely appropriate. Let's just think about how, you know, the legal process views the issue of rape, particularly in the work context. Um, mm. If you think in general, you know, if, if one is accused of, I don't know, let's say stealing um, in a work environment, there are usually processes that begin uh, quite immediately, way before any conviction is actually made. And yet when it comes to this kind of issue, quite often uh, we get told about processes that must follow. Mm. Absolutely, Bongani, and I think there's a real confusion between civil and criminal law in South Africa. And in fact, maybe it's a deliberate confusion, because certainly my experience has been in education institutions, as well as in workplaces, this hiding behind the, oh no, we have to wait until the criminal matter has, has um, run its course, and then there's a conviction, we have to give due process. And that's a misunderstanding. There are two, as I said, there's civil and criminal law, and workplaces and educational stu- um, institutions are empowered to manage discipline and conduct within their context. And there's a whole lot of regulation and law which they develop themselves within a broader framework in order to do so. So when they fail to do that, they are failing to exercise their own powers. And again, for me, that this is why I say it's selective. It's extraordinary how they jump when they see theft, for instance, as the example you use, but will drag their heels and want to go to court and have matters settled there first before they want to start disciplinary proceedings and matters of sexual offences. Lisa, I have to ask you this question, though, but when courts have sometimes overturned decisions by, uh, you know, arbitration bodies like the Education Labor Relations Council, doesn't that delegitimize their process? Well, it will depend on the basis on which the um, council made its decision. Usually you, you overturn on two bases. The one is whether the proceedings were procedurally fair meaning did the company or the institution follow all the procedures they're supposed to, did they follow their own letter of the law in in what they're supposed to do in relation to And if they didn't, well, then you can overturn a decision on that basis. And the second ground they look at is, was it substantively fair? 
So were you fair in the decisions that you made? And here, of course, they're obviously not interested in procedure, but the actual issues that are at hand. So when they're overturned, it usually means that somebody either didn't follow procedure properly or they may not have come to the right decision in, in matters of substance. So you generally need to look at each case to have a look at on what basis did they overturn and what did they overturn the conviction and more importantly, what do we learn in terms of making sure that next time we do a better job or does this perhaps also tell us that we may need to tighten up policy and law, for example. The legal system generally treats the accused and the accuser as if they were equals. Why is that particularly so egregious when it comes to the power dynamics involving a teacher and a learner? You know, I think you're dealing with, with, with positional power. So you have an, uh, a position of authority with somebody who is a subordinate, but you're also dealing with the power that comes with age. You're dealing with a child and you're dealing with an adult. And that really does tend to disadvantage the child. You know, depending on the age of the child you're dealing with, you can be talking about somebody whose level of cognitive and emotional development is simply not at the same standard as the adult. So then the sorts of questions that you ask, what you assume the child understands, can be very disadvantageous to the child. And I think if you look at legal language, that's, that's often not suited to eight and nine-year-olds. So, you know, those sorts of procedures can also be very unfair to children. You've also got to look at their capacity for concentration, how long they can follow proceedings. So all of those things can put the child at a, at a disadvantage. And so there's been a call that, you know, not only when dealing with children, but when you're dealing with those with intellectual disabilities, you really do need to modify proceedings if you're to make them fair. Because if you treat two people who are equal, who are not equal, that's fundamentally unequal. Lisa, how should the teacher unions in particular deal with allegations of sexual misconduct or assault uh, when it involves their teachers? Should they stand by their members or should they put the interests of the child first? You know, on the one hand, they do have to stand by their members because they're a union and that's what they say they're there to do. But I do think they need to ask themselves some very long and hard questions around the extent to which they may be protect- They may be actually protecting those who ought to have stopped teaching a very long time ago. So this is something that one wants to throw back at the unions and ask them to grapple with. Is yes, they must support their members' interests, but to what extent and to what degree and at what cost? Lisa Vetten there, doctoral candidate at uh, Witz City Institute. And, of course, listening in on that conversation uh, for his uh, right of reply in a moment is the General Secretary of uh, the South African Democratic Teachers Union's SATU, uh, and that's Mugwena Maluleke. And uh, we'll be giving him a chance for a right of reply. 702. 702. Bongani Bingwa. Wrapping up your day. All right, so what should unions do when their members are accused of sexual misconduct, when they're accused of rape, when they're accused of having relations with learners? What should teacher unions do in that case? Joining us now is uh, the General Secretary of Satu for their right of reply, Mugwena Maluleke. Good afternoon to you and thank you for your time. Uh, thank you for having us and good afternoon to your listeners why do you represent teachers when they're accused of these serious crimes? The teacher union, just like any other trade union, are obliged uh, to represent their members in terms of the law in South Africa. Um, but also it uh, is important that uh, each and every person must be given a fair trial and a chance to respond um, and be able to question um, the witnesses. So we 
therefore, as an organization, whilst we do not defend uh, this type of a conduct or a behavior where teachers have sexual relationship or raping of our children in our schools, we, however, have to represent them. It is required by the law that we should do so. But also, it's generally acceptable that uh, everyone is presumed innocent until proven guilty. So those particular principles are therefore uh, guiding all the trade union, um, in particular the trade unions in education. Mugwena, are you obliged to represent them in civil or criminal matters or both? We are only obliged to represent them in misconduct charges. We do not represent them when they are being charged criminally or in civil cases because that falls outside the scope of a trade union. Um, Our registration requirement spells it very clear that we can only participate in uh, in misconduct cases where the principle is based on probability rather than uh, a principle where you are going to be required to prove beyond reasonable doubt which is a criminal or a civil case. So with the, our members are very clear that um, once they go to court or a criminal uh, on a criminal charge, we, not, we are not obliged to represent them because it is not um, an area where we are um, you know, capacitated or have the, the knowledge and the experience to do so. I mean, it's hard enough for these learners to deal with their with the initial trauma, uh, what and uh, you know that they're exposed to when what more when they are not believed. In other words, what do you say to those people? You know, your legal obligations notwithstanding, who say, but surely the interests of the children should matter more. That's why, as an organisation, after we have represented such a teacher, lose the case or win the case we are then immediately able to invoke some of our policies and say we feel that we have got a a moral responsibility to the child and therefore you do not belong to this particular movement of teachers who are supposed to be in local parentis and therefore you cannot belong to the South African Democratic Teachers Union because we are a human rights organization and therefore we feel that uh, it's important that we part ways with you, uh, guilty or not guilty, because at the end of the day, we have got to ensure that our children are taken care of. That's the responsibility of a teacher. That's the responsibility of our trade union is to take care of our children. Doesn't your particular sector make it uh, particularly important that you perhaps take that attitude anyway? In other words, as unions, uh, you would be obliged to look after your members in any sector, but because you're dealing with children, uh, wouldn't it place a higher obligation on you in terms of how you deal with your members? Some would say they do this because they know they've got your protection. Well, uh, when because if you don't do that, you are likely to be um, taken to court by a particular member who says that I was not given the opportunity to to be represented, but also an opportunity to be fairly tried. And that just imagine a situation where that particular teacher is able to win the case without the union and therefore sue the union uh, millions and millions that has happened to other trade unions in the country that they have suffered losses as a result of them not being able to 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 comply with the law because all of us are law-abiding citizens and therefore all unions cannot be exempted from that they have got to do that yes we have got 
a, a responsibility, a moral responsibility to protect our children. Hence, we are debating as an organization on whether we should not be able to improve our code of conduct to the extent that we are then able to improve and amend some of this particular code of conduct and ensuring that uh, as you sign up as a member, you, 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 you bind yourself that you will not uh, engage yourself in this kind of uh, unprofessional conduct or behavior so that then in case you are charged, yeah. we're then able to use that to then say, look, you have agreed that you will not be uh, found in this particular kind of a, uncom- a compromising situation, which is putting the organization into disrepute and therefore we cannot represent you. It's a debate that is going on in our organization. There are very strong views that says do not represent them. Um, um, and therefore, you, when they come to yeah. you and say, I've been accused of this particular kind of um, misconduct, you just tell them, look, we're not going to represent you because you have violated the code of conduct of SATU. However, unfortunately, as I'm saying, when you read the first sentence in our own constitution, it says that we shall abide by the constitution of, of South Africa and by any other law of our country. It was reported a while back that SATU was opposed to a sex pest register where offending teachers uh, were put, uh, uh, you know, uh, and, and, and information was available publicly. Is that true? That's not true. Um, that was one of the first organizations after the South African Council for Educators has um, pronounced on that particular possibility. We said, yes. This is what we want. We want them to be blacklisted. We don't want them to come back uh, and teach in our schools because we cannot be able to associate with them as teachers first. But as a union, we are not able to look into their eyes and say, these are the teachers, these are the parents after they have done what they have done. So it is not true. So it was the first, first union to say we agree uh, with the South African Council of Educators. All right, Mugwena Malulega, the General Secretary, Secretary there of SATU, the South African Democratic Teachers Union.